might be a little bit painful working through these chapters 17, 18 and 19 because they do speak of much destruction and much suffering that will come to the earth when Christ's judgments fall upon them. I can assure you that in the next class, God willing, that we do on Revelation, which will be, I think, later in the year, we'll cover 950 years in one night. So um, we will be moving along a lot quicker once we get to that section. But we're dealing now with the tail end of the destruction of the Catholic system. Now, Revelation 19 does divide up quite succinctly. In verse 1 to 3, we have the, the rejoicing over the destruction of Rome. We looked at briefly in our last class. And then the, the ascribing to, to Yahweh the glory and honour due to his name for the purpose being accomplished. And we had, as we saw, the, the hallelujah chorus, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, being the, the song of the saints that they will sing when they see both Catholicism completely obliterated and they see God completely exalted. Then in verse 7 to 10, we have the call to the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper that we'll talk a little bit about tonight. And then we'll go on to verse 11 to 16, the white horse and the rider identified, and of course those that were with him on their horses, and then finally the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. So that's how the chapter divides up. Um, probably there should be no chapter division because you could read straight into chapter 20, but for sake of content, we will deal with chapter 19 tonight. Let's just revisit the timing because it's quite confusing if, if you don't actually get this in your head. So we're looking at a 50-year jubilee from the return of Christ till the opening of the kingdom. <clears throat> By that stage, the temple is built, the Jews are regathered. So we have in that first 10 years a number of things. We have the return of Christ, the gathering of the household, the judgment, the marriage of the Lamb takes place in that period when they actually join to Christ. And then we have the Battle of Armageddon and that takes up the first 10 years. Then we have the call to submit. And we know that from the Bible in other contexts that Tarshish will submit, Egypt will be converted, the Arabs will accept Christ, and they will be the first among the nations that actually answer the first call. The other nations have to be brought into line with force. So we're looking at that particular section tonight in chapter 19. So there's the same scenario, the call to submit, then the fall of Rome, because many nations will not submit in that first 10 years when there's an opportunity to willingly give in to the kingdom of Christ, because they will not submit, they will get the symbol of Rome being obliterated. And that will be the second warning. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Fear God and give glory to him. And of course, Catholic Europe will not. They will reorganize themselves. Perhaps they'll elect another Pope and they will come and they will fight against the kingdom of Christ. And it's that period in, in, in this Catholic Europe being conquered that we're going to consider very much in Revelation 19 tonight. The end of the process is the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is when all resistance has been taken down, when the kingdom has been established, the temple has been opened, and the saints in Christ go into that temple for the first time, and that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's why it says, blessed are those that are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is a future event which is yet to happen and that will happen when the kingdom is opened and, and Christ and the saints go into that temple as Ezekiel tells us in chapter 43. So there is the, the focus of this particular section, that little bit about Catholic Europe being conquered that we're going to consider tonight. Now you're very familiar with the context of the marriage of the bride. When you think about weddings, we are quite familiar with weddings in our community. 
But when you put it in a spiritual context, the bride preparing is what this life is all about. It's being ready for the wedding. We are granted robes of righteousness, imputed righteousness at our baptism. We deck ourselves with the jewels of God's character. And you can go through the Bible and you can find the things that the bride puts on in preparation for the wedding. Now in the Jewish way of doing weddings, of course, the groom would set out and he would go to the bride's place and the marriage would take place there. And so there would be then marriage at the bride's house and then they would go back to the groom's house for the reception. So that's the way the Jews used to do weddings. But of course, we have a spiritual counterpart, don't we? So when Christ takes up to Sinai, you know, it says in Ezekiel, Isaiah 26, come my people into the bridal chamber that have been prepared for you. And that's what it's about. The marriage will take place at Sinai. And so we'll be married to the, there to our groom. The marriage supper will take place at the groom's house, the, the house of prayer for all nations. And that's, of course, with the great rejoicing that they had in Jewish days. And you can see all those things that would go on and there'd be a long marriage supper that would take place at the opening of the temple. So we can see the spiritual parallels between marriage in Jewish life compared to what has been portrayed for us in the Bible. Now, bear in mind the marriage, the joining of the bride to Christ took place before Armageddon. So when we come across it here in chapter 19, it's recounting a historical event. It's deliberately placed here as a contrast to the great whore that has been destroyed. That marriage took place 20 years earlier. If you go to the diaglot, you'll see the past tense. And Brother Thomas picks this up with his knowledge of Greek. The bride had made herself ready. The bride has been arrayed in, in fine linen. This is recording a historical event that took place 20 years earlier. But the marriage supper is yet to come. And it's like when we have a wedding. You have a wedding in the, a ceremony in the hall, and we go somewhere for a reception. And that's the, the two parts that's going to take place in this marriage and the supper of the Lamb. So the marriage has taken place 20 years before, but it's brought into the record here because it's the contrast to the great whore system that has been destroyed. And it's quite easy to make that contrast, isn't it? You know, this is a whore that has committed fornication. She's arrayed in, in garments of, of royalty, purple and scarlet, the, scar the, the colour of sin. Sorry about my red tie. Um, she's full of the blood of saints. She's thrown down as a millstone and destroyed. And the whore is judged. And alongside of that, you have this, this the reward for the bride, a chaste virgin to Christ, arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, full of righteous deeds, elevated to the heavens of power. And you can get this contrast that's being made just to emphasize the difference between the two classes that Christ will, will see when he comes and returns. And so we have a great contrast. And we have a wedding to which we are invited. Now, invitations to royal weddings are fairly hard to come by. But we're not just invited to attend the wedding. We are invited to be the bride. And that's a remarkable thing. We are the bride of the Son of God. We are the bride of the King of Kings. We're going to be, as it were, daughters-in-law to the God of heaven, the first fruits unto the Lamb. Incredible privilege we've invited to be the bride in this wedding. where the body of Christ will be forever joined to the Son of God. It's an invitation, brethren and sisters, we would be foolish 
not to treat with great respect and great reverence because God has invited us to be the first fruits under his son to be the reward for his son for the son's faithfulness this is God's present as it were to his, his faithful obedient son I'm going to give you a people that are like you in whom you can see yourself reflected what a wonderful privilege that invitation is now I want you to notice in this section of Revelation 19 a statement that occurs over and over again and particularly in verse 9 I want to just dwell upon these statements because this statement occurs in, in chapter 19 verse 9 21 verse 5 and 22 verse 6 these are the true sayings of God in chapter 21 verse 5 these words are true and faithful these sayings are faithful and true and right through this last section of the apocalypse we have these punctuations of assurance that are given to the saints now why would God say the same thing over again and of course when you look at the man on the horse in verse 11 he's called faithful and true so we have a constant repetition of these two factors now we know what faithfulness is it's God's complete ability to do what he says he's going to do you know we can make promises and, and quite often things get in the way and we don't actually fulfill them but when God says he's going to do something it will happen God cannot lie so when they say these are the true sayings and these words are true and faithful they are utterly and totally reliable now I want you to think how different it is to what we hear in our world today you know mankind comes up with all kinds of fallacies they think they have opinions that are genuine and everyone accepts them and then five years later they rewrite the whole textbook mortal man's opinions are constantly changing his word cannot be relied upon the theories of scientists cannot be relied upon the guesswork of atheists cannot be relied upon there is no source of absolute total faithfulness in the words you will read other than what God has put in this Bible and the reason why that's emphasized over and over again in this section is that from the time of John onwards the disciples of Christ would have to make a choice that could cost them their life will you offer incense to the to the Emperor in the days of the Roman Empire will you accept the Trinity in the days of Constantine and those that followed him will you accept the authority of the Pope once the Pope was made the Bishop of the world will you accept the doctrines of the church will you renounce your belief in the hope of Israel and if you didn't believe that these words were faithful and true you could be tempted to recant and give up your faith so Christ says over and over again these words are faithful and true you can risk your life on them they are worth dying for because they will happen and the servants of God had to have total confidence in these words these are the true sayings of God now we notice in verse 9 and 10 particularly in verse verse 9 he saith unto me this of course is the angel from chapter 1 verse 1 the communicating angel I believe Gabriel who he's talking to John and he said unto me write and it's quite interesting to go through Revelation and just make a list of all the times he's told to write something down because 
He'd been told to write it all down at the start of the book. But there are particular points where the angel stops and says, okay, I know you're taking all this in, I know you're trying to visualise all this, but I want you to write this down. So John's told on a number of occasions to actually make a note of this particular point. Blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true sayings of God. So what's being put before the saints? It has to be written down so that it's not lost. Is the day will come when the war will be over. The conquest will be over. The destruction will be over. And you'll sit down at a world in peace at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ in the temple in Zion. And you will rejoice that what God has said from the very beginning he would do in the earth has now come to pass. The Lord shall be king over the whole earth and his name won. And that will be the beginning of the process of converting the world to be part of that kingdom in the future. So we have a situation where this angel is saying to John, write this down. This is an important and true saying that the saints have to hang on to, even when they're being persecuted for their life. Now there's a lot of interaction happens between John and the angels, and as you know, if I start on angels, we could be here for a long time. But, but when we come to this angel, he's, he's been talking to John all the way through. And what John happens here, John is so overwhelmed when he hears all this and he's told to write it. Imagine writing this down. And he write it down, the marriage supper of the Lamb. I've got to make sure that gets in. And when he's written it all down, he fell at his feet to worship the angel. This angel knows everything about the future. You imagine talking to an individual that's just given you 1,900 years of history and wants to go on and tell you the next 950 years. And John's just getting overwhelmed. And so he, he felt, this angel, he said, this is an incredible being, this angel, that knows all this information. And so he falls down to worship him. Now I want you to notice the reaction of the angel. The angel says this, don't do that, John. I am thy fellow servant. One thing about the angels that you notice, wherever you go and look at the angels, there's not one touch of arrogance about them. Confidence, yes, but never personal arrogance. And they see us as their fellow servants. They see us like younger brothers and sisters who have yet to come into immortality. When the family of God is totally united, as Ephesians says, they're working on us to, to have us share with, with them the glory of God for eternity. And they see us as fellow servants. When you go to Revelation 22, we have the same thing happens where John again falls down. He actually adds an extra point. I'm your fellow servant, John, and of thy brethren, the prophets, and of them that keep the sayings of this book. And, and you cannot miss in Revelation that God tells you his estimation of the prophets. There's people like John, there's all of us which try to keep the sayings of this book, but there's a special category in God's mind, and that is his prophets. Because they are the people that go out and they stand up for the word of God and they take the consequences. So the humility of the angelic nature is something that we can admire. Is the Pope very humble? When new priests are ordained in Rome, they have to get on their face before the Pope and grovel while he blesses them for the new job. 
That's not very angelic, is it? The Pope demands obeisance. And you get on your face if you're going to be a priest. What a contrast. But I want you to notice the end of verse 10. Of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit, the attitude of the prophets. So what the angel is now saying is, John, you're a prophet. John, there were other people come after you. And they will go into the world and they will tell the Roman world that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is coming back. And they will tell the Roman world later on that Jesus is not a trinity. And they will be the witnesses for Jesus. It's the spirit of the prophets to say exactly what the truth of God is all about. But it will come at a cost, as it did for the prophets. Just come flick back to Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. You know, when John wrote this whole book down and sent it to the Ecclesiastes, he said this, I, John, who am your companion and brother in tribulation. Notice John says not, I'm not, you know, John, your apostle, the one that's at the top of the tree now. No, he didn't say that. He's a fellow laborer. He's a fellow servant. Your companion and brother in tribulation in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. On Patmos, for the word of God. And there he was, stuck there on that tin mine, working like a convict for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that's where it gets you when you stand up sometimes and you say, thus saith the Lord. And that's what's being told here. John, we love people like you. We admire people like you that get up and say what the word of God wants to be said. And you take the consequences. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And we have to continue that witness, brethren and sisters. We have to continue that witness. And if time does go on, and we pray that it doesn't, but if it does go on, and our world brings in these crazy laws against free speech, under all the banners that they use of not having bullying, not having racism, not having any of these things, we're going to find ourselves very, very tested sometimes. When society turns on us, as they're doing already in the UK, where you can't have lecture titles like we normally have, because they come under the hate speech regulations. And the question is, will we continue to witness and take the consequences? So, the angel says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of the prophets. And we have to have that spirit, brethren and sisters. And we open a new section in verse 11. We open a section where we now have the vision of the rider on the white horse. And later on, we're going to find in verse 14, he's got plenty of people with him on white horses. But the focus is first on the rider on the white horse. I saw heaven opened. Behold a white horse. Now in the Bible, horses usually symbolize war. You can find many quotes, I'll give you some later on about that. But just say that it's a symbol of war and conquest. Behold a white horse. So here's righteous conquest. White, of course, is the, is the number of, or the colour of righteousness. This is a righteous conquest. Now you've seen a white horse before in Revelation. Back in the seals, the first horse was a white horse. But the rider of that white horse 
had no weapons. He had a bow, but no arrow. So the gospel was out there, but it was going out in a climate where it was not going to, to, to cause any harm. This rider on the white horse is going to bring the gospel of the kingdom, and he's going to do it with a sword going out of his mouth. This is going to cause harm. No longer is the time for people to make a decision whether they want it or not. They're going to get it whether they want it or not. So we have a rider upon a white horse. Let's just ex examine some of the symbols. So a king who wages war. Later on he's called the king of kings in verse 16 and lord of lords. But look at some of the things that we read about him. Just let me read all the qualities of this one on the white horse. Faithful and true is the title given to him first. In righteousness, so white, does he judge and make war. So this is about battles. His eyes is a flame of fire. So whenever you get eyes a flame of fire, you can go right back through the scriptures and, and, and trace that. Penetrating and destructive. He sees evil and he burns it. That's why the eyes are a flame of fire. Penetrating and destructive. On his head, many crowns. He's already had many victories, even before this last battle starts. So he's already conquered many nations. Many nations have submitted to him and laid their crowns at his feet. And he goes forth already wearing many crowns to eventually end up as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So he's already a conqueror. And he had a name written, which no man knew. I'll come back to that one a little bit later on. We also read in verse 13, he's clothed in a vesture dipped with blood and his name is called the Word of God. Okay, let's just pull those symbols apart. A white horse, righteous battles are being fought. Called faithful and true, his words, his proclamations will come to pass. The leaders of mankind get up and they make all kinds of proclamations and promises and almost nothing comes to pass. Whatever he says, whatever he's going to do, will happen. His eyes are the flame of fire, fiery judgment, penetrating everywhere. Many crowns, he's conquered many kingdoms. His garments dipped in blood. He's victorious because of the sacrifice that he made. And now he will also, those horses, as Revelation 14 said, they will tread the blood, opened up the horses' bridles. There's going to be a lot of destruction take place. But he's victorious because of the sacrifice that he made. The name, the word of God, he's the word made flesh. He's the word that dwelt among us, as John says in his epistle. And the sharp sword from his mouth. The sharp because it perceives between flesh and spirit. You know, Hebrews 4 verse 12, the word of God is a, is a quick and an energetic sword. Discerns between soul and spirit. Clear directives will go out. Clear words from God will go from the mouth of Christ and he will totally conquer the world. The symbols are not complicated, brethren and sisters. You can find them going right back through the Bible. But there's one there which is a little bit interesting. I want to talk about this one at the end of verse 12. Let's go back to that one. It says there, he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Now, 
within the brotherhood there's a whole lot of variations upon interpreting this some people say that very simply well no man knew the name and the name's revealed in verse 13 as the word of God well I personally don't go along with that because John said we've known and we've handled the word of God when he wrote his epistle some many years earlier so I don't think that name was any way mysterious perhaps I'll give you the the, the second best view <laughs> Um, because the word knew, know there, or knew, no man knew, but he himself, it's the Greek word oider, and you're probably aware that in the Greek there are two words for knowledge, gnosko and oida, oida being the more comprehensive knowledge, a deeper knowledge, gnosko being an intellectual just understanding of a subject, but oida is really getting down to the, to the heart of the matter. So perhaps you can say, if the name is the word of God, nobody really appreciated his closeness to God, his completeness being an expression of the Bible than Jesus did himself. So perhaps it, it is the word of God and he was the one that really comprehensively understood it, being the word made flesh. But it's interesting, I'd actually say, well look, back in chapter 2 verse 12, in one of the seven letters, one of the promises that Jesus made was that we would not only have upon us the name of God, the Father's name in our foreheads. We would be given the name of New Jerusalem. We're part of that city that will come down from above. But it also goes on to say in chapter 2 and verse 12, we'll also have a new name. And when you look at the angels, you find that we only know the, the names of two. And we have Gabriel and Michael. And Gabriel is also called Palmoni in the book of Daniel. So, but these names are indicative, not perhaps the name that they bore in their mortality. These are the names that God has given them for the work that they now have to do. Well, they may be expressions, the angels' names may be expressions of the particular relationship that God felt for them. And I believe the new name is something that God has in store as part of the reward for the faithful. And I think he's got a name for Christ that is going to be revealed as part of the kingdom. A name that is not yet known to us. Because it says that no man knew but himself. And there's going to be something about that name which is interesting. So I'd be very welcome to take any feedback on that and to be corrected if, if you can actually prove otherwise. Okay, so let's move on then to verse 14. Because that's just now where we come into the picture. The armies which were in heaven, so in heaven, now in power, now ruling over the earth, followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. So obviously it's the saint community again that is there. Remember we saw from chapter 17 verse 14, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and they that are with him are called, chosen and faithful. And again, we have this, this need for us to share the values, to share what Christ is doing, and to see the justice of it. None of us like to talk about people losing their lives. None of us like to see the fact that there will be great destruction all over the world. The slain of the Lord will be many, says Isaiah and Jeremiah. But it has to happen. If the world is going to come to the kingdom we want, there has to be the removal of the wicked. And we have to be with him in that, brethren and sisters, when he goes forth with that great army to conquer the nations. Well, who are the horses? I said I'd come back to that. Right through the Bible, horses are a symbol of warfare because they were the powerful beasts that in ancient times people took into war and of course they made a difference. If you're infantry up against cavalry, you normally lost the battle. 
So again, there's a whole lot of verses there about uh, horses can symbolise a group of people or nations that you can follow through if you want to. But I want to talk about the two riders because we have a beast being ridden and we have a white horse being ridden. And again, Revelation does this. It gives you this tremendous contrast. You have a bride and a whore, and now you have the rider of a beast and a rider of a horse. And here's the contrast. Christ on a white horse, the harlot on a scarlet beast. Faithful and true, unfaithful being a harlot, and untrue because he deceives everybody. In righteousness judging, in unrighteousness judging. If you want to do a bit of interesting reading, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read about a man called Torquemada. If you haven't heard of him, he was the leader of the Spanish Inquisition. And see what he did to people. How unrighteous his judgments were. Unrighteous judgment of the witnesses. He makes, Christ makes war with the beast. And, and of course, they make war with the saints. And they have down through time. And they make war with the lamb, as we're told here in this chapter as well. He's called the Word of God, and they suppress the Word of God. You've probably seen the pictures of the Bibles chained up in the monasteries so that the average man could not get to read the Bible. Their Bibles, Catholic Bibles, were all in Latin so that they had to be interpreted by the priests. Christ will rule them with a rod of iron. And of course, we saw in the kingdom of Constantine that there was a ruling with a rod of iron. King of kings and Lord of lords, and the man who says that he's reigning over the kings of the earth is the opposition to that. Again, we have a contrast laid out between the rider of the beast and the rider of the white horse. And, and Revelation is full of these sort of contrasts. So we come down to verse 17 to 21. In that section, we have the conquest of the beast's dominion. So this is the, the overthrowing of Catholic Europe in particular, which will, of course, go on to removing all the Catholicism right around the world. But it begins with Europe, where Catholicism has flourished for 2,000 years, nearly. Okay, so, it says in Revelation 19 and verse 15, or verse 17, saw an angel standing in the sun. So this is now the phase of the conquest where the angel stands in the sun. And that means the sun, of course, being the dominant power that shines upon the earth, this is, again, a symbol of Christ in, in his conquest, the white horse there, an angel in the sun. But a cry goes out to the fowls of heaven. Now, I'm not suggesting literally, and again, you've got to say this is symbolic. It's not literal that there's going to be millions of vultures in Europe having a great feast. This is using Bible language for destruction. And it talks about the winepress and it talks about these birds coming. I want to just deal with the winepress first. Because the wine press has already been forecast to us back in Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation 14, we have one of those things where the record shows you the development of the papacy, and then it shows you their unwinding in chapter 14. And it's one of these phases where you get a picture back then, and then we go on and we start unwinding from where that historical section let off, and we do the vials until it again comes to an end. Back in chapter 14, there was the picture of two harvests. There was the wheat harvest, Armageddon, and there is the winepress harvest, which is the destruction of Catholic Europe. So look what it says in Revelation 14. Another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried to the one that had the sharp sickle, thrust in the sharp sickle, gather the clusters 
of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So Armageddon is the first battle. Now we have the conquest of the Catholic system, which is the, the plucking of the grapes to go into the winepress. And they were gathered and put in the winepress of the wrath of God. Now, portrayed there is a winepress where the grapes would be brought in from the field, put into a winepress, and then people would jump all over them like this to tread the vines, the, the grapes, and, the, and the, you can see there the, um, the, the juice coming out as this man jumps all over it. And of course they do this at the Bushing Festival down at McLaren Vale. Um, you can go and see this happen in South Australia. They still do it today, just to go back and look how it was done. But the Jews were very familiar with this symbol, the treading of the winepress. And of course what that means is the crushing and the blood are the things that are noted. So, it says there that there would be this winepress of God that would take place. That's in verse 15. He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And then in verse 16, he hath on his vesture, on his thigh, a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Again, I'll toss a question out. Why on the thigh and not another part of the body? And you can come back and perhaps talk about that one with me. But he has another name written. So he's already got faithful and true. He's got the Word of God. And now you've got King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this man on the, on the white horse has got plenty of titles with him. So we have this then appeal to the birds. Someone did that. I don't know who did that. <laughs> Didn't see it. Go back and do it again. <laughs> so we're coming to the birds, you see. So that wasn't me that did that. <laughs> so we're coming to the birds, the vultures. And when you go back through the, through the Bible... Plenty of times you come across the symbol of vultures being a symbol of ignominious defeat and disgrace as your body is eaten on the battlefield. And, you know, this is a supper which is given to the vultures of the world and the, and the carrion, contrasted with the marriage supper of the lamb. Eaten by birds and beasts, an ignominious death. Remember David and Goliath? God will give you to the birds and the vultures of the, of the field. Curse on Israel was that they would, vultures would, would eat their flesh. The fate of idolatrous Judah was to have vultures eat them. At Armageddon, in Ezekiel 39, the vultures and the birds are again part of the Armageddon scene because it's showing that there will be bodies lying everywhere. And why is it appropriate for the Catholic system? Well, they are the cage of every foul and unclean bird to start with. And secondly, they killed the saints like they were criminals and gave them ignominious deaths by torture disgraceful deaths where they were publicly humiliated and then burnt at the stake or drowned and so God has for Catholic Europe an ignominious fate waiting ahead of them so the armies that followed him we looked at in verse 14 but I want you to notice now in verse 19 it says I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And I can't make this point strongly enough, brethren and sisters, as much as we, we actually hate the thought of the considerable loss of life that's involved in these chapters. It has to happen before we can rebuild the world. There has to be the destruction of these vile systems, the removal of people who will never submit to the will of God and the people who oppose him in so many ways. So, 
the man on the horse and his army go forth to battle. In verse 19, the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies will gather themselves together against them. So there will be a united opposition. This is why there's 10 years between the destruction, uh, between Armageddon and the destruction of Rome. And another time period given them to actually submit as many nations will. So they've got time to organise. They've got time to get their NATO forces together. They've got time to get going. I believe they will probably elect a new pope at this stage because we read in verse 20 that the false prophet goes alive into the destruction. So you can imagine, can't you, if the pope in Rome disappears, they will find somebody else in somewhere else, perhaps in somewhere like Aachen or one of those places or Bruges. Some of those places where the Catholics have flourished for centuries. Another pope will rise up and unite Europe to fight Christ. Why will they fight? Well, why? This is why. This is the church teaching about the Antichrist. You know, way back in the 12th and 13th century, when the Bible started to become able to be printed by other people, the church decided that all these verses about their destruction had to be counted. All the verses about Antichrist had to have some other explanation to take attention away from themselves. And so they invented the doctrine of the Antichrist and it's been picked up by the Evangelicals and the Pentecostals. And here's what some of them say. And you'll note how Lindsay gets quite a mention here. Some of you would, Des is old enough to remember how Lindsay, he was a big, big wheel in the 1960s amongst the Evangelicals. But some of these words are the beliefs of most Evangelical churches today. The way in which this dictator is going to step into the world will be dramatic. The person will be a Jew. So they believe that somebody will set up a kingdom in Jerusalem who will be a Jew and claim to be the king of the world. And they say that will be the Antichrist coming to power. The Antichrist will actually pose as the Messiah. Satan himself will give him fantastic power to work all kinds of miracles. So if Christ performs miracles, they won't be convinced because that's what they expected would happen because they believe that Satan's behind it. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. Dictators rule. The Antichrist will deify himself just like the Caesars did. He will establish himself in the rebuilt temple. Haven't they set themselves up to never ever recognise the kingdom of Christ? They got no hope of perceiving the kingdom of Christ if they've been believing that stuff for centuries. You can see why they're going to set themselves to fight against the Lord Jesus Christ. It will not have impressed them that the Russian armies and all their cohorts in the land were destroyed at Armageddon. They will say, we cannot tolerate this Antichrist in Jerusalem. And so they will fight against him. Well, fire destruction. Now notice it says in verse 20, the beast was taken. So that is the leadership, the armies of Catholic Europe. And with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles, you know, the deceptions of the Pope, convincing people they can perform miracles and healings and transubstantiation and all those things they claim they can do. With which he deceived them and received the mark of the beast and those that worship his image. They both, that is the leaders of Catholic Europe and the false prophet were cast alive into the burning lake of fire. And I believe what's going to happen here is what you saw in the time of the judges and the time of Joshua, particularly the time of Joshua, when they conquered the Canaanite kings, 
destroyed their armies and took the kings back for a judicial execution. And I think that's going to happen here. And Brother Robert suggests the same. The judgment of the leaders will be public so that the whole world sees what happens when you oppose the kingdom of Christ. They will be cast alive into total destruction. Now, what is this lake of fire and brimstone? You're going to read a lot about this in the next chapter or two. Let's get very clear. We're not talking about anything to do with the hell of the churches. When you read about the lake of fire and brimstone and the burning forever, it's the Bible symbol of total and utter destruction. Nothing survives it. You'll see it in chapter 20, verse 10. Let's look over to that. 20, verse 10. The devil or the human nature that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone to join the beast and the false prophet. And they shall be tormented. So they shall be there in disgrace forever and ever. You find it in chapter 20, verse 14. When death itself is removed, it goes into the lake of fire. So now, now there's, there's, you know, those who are judged unworthy, they also are now totally and utterly annihilated and destroyed at the end of the millennium. Chapter 21, verse 8. The very, very last verse of the, of the historical section. All of those in the kingdom who've lived ungodly lives shall also disappear into total destruction, never to be seen again upon the earth. So it's the Bible symbol for total and utter complete oblivion. So that's what's going to happen at the end of this process. The beast and the false prophet will never, ever be seen again. Just note in chapter 20, we know about the final rebellion. We'll do that in the next class, God willing. But it says there, chapter 20, verse 8, at the end of the kingdom, when the rebellion takes place, Gog and Magog will reassert themselves. But there's no Catholics anymore. There's no false prophet anymore. They go forever, completely out of sight, never ever to be seen again. And Daniel tells us why. I beheld because of the voice of the great words, the little horn spoke, the arrogance, the changing of times and laws, the persecution of the saints. I beheld till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So both the beast and the horn that speaks great things will go into oblivion to the flames, never to be seen again. Another portrayal there of the beast and the false prophet being cast into the lake of fire. Let us rejoice at the final destruction of the evil Catholic system that has deceived billions and billions of people over more than 1,700 years and stolen from them the hope of life eternal. That's how God sees it. That's what they have done to the people that God created to be in his own image. They've kept them in darkness and ignorance and they will be totally and utterly obliterated. Our role in the future, you know the words of Psalm 149. I know a lot of Christadelphians cringe to have to read these words. But not those who've read what's happened to our brethren under the heel of the Catholic Church. If you find those words uncomfortable about having the praises of God in your mouth and a two-edged sword in your hand, if you find that uncomfortable that people will be executed and vengeance will fall upon nations, go and read what happened to our brethren. As I say, just read the story of Torquemada. Absolutely incredible man in the damage that he did to both our brethren 
non-Catholics and to Jews. He was a terrible persecutor and he was just one of thousands like him. So that's the honour we have. This honour have all the saints. And we have to see it that way, brethren and sisters. It is an honour to be part of this process. So what lessons do we take away? Well, we've said it before, we've got to share God's hatred for the system, for its doctrines, for its practices, and for its persecutions. But we don't hate the individual Catholic. We don't hate people who are deceived by it. We feel sorry for them. And we've got to try and reach them. And the fact that it takes 30 years for this to be completely finished, all around the world, mind you, it's got to be done, shows how long suffering Christ will be, how much time he will give them to think about what's happened. You know, when they see Rome go, when they see the beast go, the rest of the Catholic world is going to say, hmm, what are we going to do? And some will fight. But Christ will give them time. That's why it takes a long time before the final conquest is made. And we should eagerly look forward to being amongst the saints, to, to purging the world of evil. Now I want to finish with this particular slide tonight. Getting us back to the fact that we are called to be that bride of Christ. Because the Lamb's wife has a challenge. Now we know the principle, Christ loved the Ecclesia, gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious ecclesia, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. There's the preparation for the bride. Brethren and sisters, when a person gets engaged, a bride gets engaged, the very first thing that she must decide is the date of the wedding. You know, she comes out, flashes the ring. When's the wedding? That's the first question everybody asks, isn't it? And that bride then knows how long she's got to get through all the preparations. And I've seen some incredibly organised brides over the years who've got everything laid out step by step they have to do. And you hardly ever see one that gets to the day not properly prepared. So the first thing she has is the date of the wedding, which then she can plan to. But we don't know the day, brethren and sisters. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour when we'll be called away to the wedding. And that's why we have the parables, like the parable of the virgins, the parable of the servants. And we have to ask the question, do we have the extra oil? Are we keeping our garments and washing our garments through forgiveness? Are we ready? Those that are ready will go in, said Jesus. So while the invitation is majestic to be part of the bride, the preparation is hard because we don't have a date. You can see I'm not my brother. But, but we don't have a date. We don't know how long we'll be. There are people in this hall that were utterly convinced that Christ would come in 1967. But we're here 53 years later. Doesn't mean that he won't come. What it means is we have to be ready whenever he comes. And that's the challenge for the bride, isn't it? That's the hard part of being the bride. Remember what Jesus said through the angel. And remember this as we live in a world of great uncertainty and great deception. Jesus said, these sayings 
are faithful and true. You can utterly rely upon them. Brethren and sisters, it's not a time to slip away to try and find anything of benefit in this crazy world. It's not a time to give up the struggle that it is to keep in tune with the mind of God. And time is short. Whether it's mortality that strikes first or the coming of the Lord, time is short, whichever way you look. The challenge is, these sayings are faithful, they are true, they will come to pass, with or without us, but we can be there. And Christ encourages us, hold fast that which thou hast until I come.